0: We're picking up from our series that we had in the autumn, and so i really encourage me, if you could turn to page 1007, page 1007 that Stephen uh, so carefully read for us. Uh, can I thank Lillian for stealing part of my sermon this morning? Uh, it's all good, it's all good, it's all good when things link together, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's great actually when... People haven't been speaking, but we're running along the same line. So thank you so much for your faithful prayers. Well, if you remember back in December, we saw in Mark's Gospel that right at the start of the Gospel, Mark makes this huge claim. So keep a, a finger on page 1007 and turn with me to page 1002. And you'll read there the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, and it reminded me of the, the mass. Books that I had whenever I went to Regent House and I studied there. They used to have the question, and then you went to the end of the Mass book, and it gave you the answer. Uh, And uh, what you used to do was work back from the answer to the question. And the Mass professor would be able to tell you, You don't have a clue what you're talking about, do you, Martin? You haven't a notion what you're doing, but we've got the answer right there at the very start of the gospel. Here is the Son of God, here is God's King, the Messiah. And in our last study, uh, as we were looking through it, we were left with this question. Again, if you just turn to the bottom of page 1006, as Jesus calmed the storm, you remember this question that the the disciples asked. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And if you look at Psalm 107, you'll see why they asked that question. They knew their Bibles. They knew that only God could calm the storm. So they're terrified. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is not only king over nature, over the natural order. He's king over everything, as we've sung in our children's song. He's king over the supernatural order. So to do that, let's keep our Bibles open and let's pray together. And then let's get into this. Bible text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we look at Mark's gospel. We can turn our eyes upon Jesus and see him so clearly and what he came to do. And so Lord, that's our our prayer. Help us to see him again and again and again, that the things of this world will so uh, strangely dim. We pray help us to trust him more and more through the joys and sorrows of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you've ever been on a bus or a train or in a room when somebody's acting really weird and uh, you kind of think, I'm glad I brought that book or that newspaper. It becomes your barrier between you and them. You don't want to make eyes with them. They're just playing weird. You're fearful. Please God, don't let them sit beside me. Please God, don't let them make eye contact with me. And the last thing Lord, don't let them speak to me. Well I wonder if that's exactly what Jesus' disciples thought as they got out of their boat and they've moved across to the other side of Lake Galilee. They're now near a town called Gergesa. We're told here that the Gerasenes, the area, the region of the Gerasenes. And suddenly this man who'd been told had been living among the tombs, living in caves, he's possessed or oppressed by an evil spirit, chains rattling the People are trying to bind them and hold them down. This wild eyed man bursts onto the scene. And what would you do? What would you do? For me, I'd be getting back into that boat and pushing off and putting a bit of water between me and him. But you do want to make no sudden movements, nothing to draw attention to yourself. You know, walk slowly backwards, keeping an eye on him. And you just get back into the boat and just push away and go slowly back over as far as you can on the other side of the lake. And Mark gives us so much detail here that he's received from the apostle Peter. And, uh, you know, Peter has told Mark, Mark has written it down for us, we've recorded so much detail, just like in the little story that was before, how Jesus is sleeping on the pillow. And think of all the the madness of it all here, as as we read this story. This man, the squeals of the pig, and then silence. And then this man who'd been possessed sitting in his right mind on the ground, saying, "Can somebody give me a bit of water? Can somebody help me here?" And Mark records this material for us because he wants us to see clearly, as we said in the very start of our series. If you remember, I used the example of how my glasses are really dirty and sometimes I need to clean them to, to see clearly. Us, Mark wants us to get to see who Jesus is clearly. Because if we see Jesus clearly, we'll see ourselves clearly. We'll get the gospel clearly. We'll see God clearly. Because Jesus is God. And so, this morning, what I want us to see are three things about who Jesus is. And, and here's the first one: Who is this? Jesus is the one who's come to deal with hopeless situations. Because if you look in verses one to five here, of uh, on page one thousand and seven, you can see how bad it is for this man. Let's read it together. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with evil spirit came to the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he would often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. He was an outcast. No one wanted to be near. Imagine the smell. Imagine people having to chain you down because you're so uncontrollable. And even the chains can't hold you in your frenzy. Imagine being so disturbed that you cry out night after night and you cut yourself with stones. How broken this man is. How how much utter torment must he be suffering in. And it's striking that one minute he's speaking to Jesus and the next it's the demon speaking to Jesus. He's so mixed up. He's a man Mark presents to us without hope, a man you and I would have avoided at all costs. It's all because he is oppressed by the evil spirit. Today we have a, a lot of issues with that because we're a little bit smarter than the people of this age, aren't we? We're a lot more scientific. We, we, we get it, you know, we, we're far smarter. We think this is more to do with kind of fictional horror stories, like The Exorcist, if you've ever seen it. Don't go looking for it in real life. And some commentators, as you go to study this, will say, this is epilepsy or this is mental illness. But my question about that is, how does mental illness jump from this man into the pigs? What would that look like? What would that look like? We need to be careful here. And I think we should follow the advice of C.S. Lewis, a good Belfast man, who says that we shouldn't go to either extreme. On the one hand, we need to be very careful of saying that everything is demonic. And so you've, you've some churches who, if you cough or sneeze, they're over at you, nearly calling out demons. You know, the demon of, of this, get out! You know, I heard about a story where they brought up children who'd been naughty and they were exercising them. But look, you and I know there are many reasons why children and adults behave badly, and actually a lot of it is down to do with parents, not demons. The other extreme to say is, wise up. All that stuff about demons, that's all nonsense. No such thing as demons. A former bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, he said, the story was like, a, you know, to say that there's no such thing as demons is like a king of a hot desert who refused to believe in ice because he'd never come across it. We need to be really careful. Just because we haven't been exposed to this or encountered it doesn't mean that we can just dismiss it. If you and I were to take a, a plane to my brother's country in Nigeria, let me tell you, we wouldn't be too long before we'd see this. I can tell you in, in, in the main street of Tunisia, in the middle of Tunis, the capital, People dancing and sticking swords through them and then asking them why they were doing it. They told me they were full of jinn. Now, that's not gin and tonic. Jinn, which in Arabic is evil spirit. You talk about the Maclean's or the Briggs. Have they seen it? They've definitely seen it. And I've been asked in our parish and in other parishes to come and to pray in homes where people have sensed evil there. And so evil is real. But the problem with this man is that he's demon possessed. He's without peace. He's without hope. And yet when nobody else would come or could come and engage with him. Jesus the son of God does. That's the point. We get this. When he meets with Jesus, Jesus doesn't avoid him. He meets with him where he's at, and he deals with him where he is at. And again, that's the point. We have the most hopeless situation that no one can deal with, and Jesus does. And that's something we'll see over the next few weeks as we study Mark's gospel. No one can deal with the death of the young girl, but Jesus can. He brings hope. And applying this to us, we may not be demon-possessed. But there is a way that we are desperate and hopeless. See, the Bible says you and I were enslaved to sin. May, we may not agree with that, but that's a biblical truth. We may not be demon possessed, but we're all slaves to sin under the dominion of darkness, under the devil. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, or even read it with me as we turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and page 1174. If you want to follow it with me. Look what it says. Page 1174, chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, he's writing to the the Ephesian church, but he could as well be writing to us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit is not disobedient in those who are disobedient. He's talking about, he said, we were dead, dead in our sins when we followed the devil. We had no... No way of getting out of that situation by ourselves. Our hopeless state before Christ is exactly that—we're dead in our sins, spiritually dead, without hope. And in our prayer books, uh, you know, if you want to say this is an Anglican theology, it is. In our prayer books, on the third Sunday in Lent, the Collect says this: "Almighty God, you know we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves." We have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And that is our situation, that without Christ, we are hopeless. And yet Jesus comes into this world. That's what we celebrated just a couple of weeks back, wasn't it? That's what Christmas was about. He comes into our world to bring his hope and to deal with our hopeless situation. Next point, who is this? The one who exercises the power and authority of God himself. And those Jews who were looking on this would have spotted all the signs. They would see Jesus do only things that God could do. Last time we saw him come in the storm controlling the world and they knew their Old Testament, they knew the Psalms. They knew that when God's king would come, he would crush the devil. They knew Genesis 3. He would defeat evil. And as they watch Jesus, they see him do exactly that. Now, I really want us to get this clear in our heads because I think sometimes we get this a little bit mistaken. We often take a little bit of Eastern religion into our own religion because we often think there's this long battle between good and evil. It's kind of like, you know, Star Wars. It's been going on for 40 odd years. Until we find out this year, good wins. Everywhere in the Bible where it talks about evil, it is showing us God's authority over evil. You know, we get this, but we get this wrong. We get this kind of Eastern mysticism, a a yin-yang of cosmic balance, where there's evil and there's good. No, in the Bible, you see always God in control. Even if you go to the book of Job, you see the devil having to go to God to ask permission to tempt Job. And here, too, we see Jesus taking control in verses 7 to 13. Have a little look at it. These demons, they know who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. They see what he said. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. You know, The letter of James says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Here we see it. And Marcus told us already about Jesus' authority of the demonic. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 24. Let's look at it there. So we'll go to verse 23. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him, the evil spirit shook the man violently. came out with him with a shriek. And Jesus asks, he says, verse 9, what is your name? My name is Legion. See, to have someone's name is to have authority. Let me explain that a little bit. There's a couple of houses in the parish that I have great fear of. They've got dogs running around them, but I remember one in, in, in Drumore, especially in the parish of Drumore. There was a house there that had a lovely new bungalow, a wall, a big steel gate at the front that you go through, and a lovely big Doberman who would have ripped the leg off you as quick as look at you. And I remember going to the door. I, opened, I used to open the gate, open the gate, to the head in, close again. <laughs> and then you'd hear the, you know the, the wife or the husband come out and they'd shout, they get this, tiny. <laughs> tiny that thing was anything but tiny. Tiny, go lie dog. So a... went off. Oh. See, they had the name, they had the authority over that dog. Go tell it what to do. And the point is that the owner had called the name and had the authority. And Jesus not only gets the name, but has the authority. He casts out the demon. And the be- demons, look, they beg Jesus. Send us among the pigs, allow us to go with them. These demons who have been running riot in this man. They now beg Jesus to allow them to go somewhere else. They don't have the authority to go by themselves. And we can debate about why these pigs, until, excuse the pun, the cows come home. But the issue here, we need to get it, is Jesus' authority. They are cast out and they are destroyed. Jesus is showing the authority of God over the demonic. And that is a huge encouragement to us. It reminds us that every time we bow and we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, We are praying to the one who is the authority over all evil. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the parts of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what we see here is that Jesus destroys the spiritual forces of evil. And as he goes to the cross, as Paul says in Colossians Christ has disarmed the powers and authority, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. So here we have the one who's demonstrated that evil cannot and will not win. And so when we think that evil has got the better grasp on the situation, or it seems that the devil is winning or that sin can never be defeated or disarmed, we need to stop. We need to pray. When we're tempted to stop praying for situations that look as black as hell itself, we need to come back to this truth. We need to pray. To see that Jesus can dramatically change his situation, however evil it may appear. And that's a real challenge to me because if I don't see a change, I'm a very impatient man, if I don't see a change in a month or two or three, I usually give up. And what this passage is challenging me and I'm guessing challenging you is this, don't, don't. Jesus breaks down evil. It's the power that he has. Who is this? The one who breaks into hopeless situations. The one who is the authority and the power of God himself. And he's the one whom we need to respond. You see, every act of Jesus demands a response. It's the same here. So, what do people make of what they've seen? Well, the demons have got it right, haven't they, in verse 7? Jesus, son of the Most High God. They've got it. So, all the others make of what they've seen this man now right in his right mind, life back on track, man who had been chained up, who'd been slashing himself, who'd been screaming out in the night. What do they make of the change of him? Well, there are two responses. And Mark writes the word beg or implore three times in this passage. First one is those demons begging Jesus not to destroy them. And then we get two other times it talks about begging. The first one is verse 17. Do you read it there? Verse 17. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Heartbreakingly sad. They've seen the change in the man. They've seen the pigs and everything else. They've even got others to come and look further. But having seen what Jesus can do, their response is, Jesus, you got to go. They may be frightened that they're going to lose more of their livestock. Maybe they're frightened because they can't control them. But you know what's terrifying when someone who is confronted with such convincing evidence still says no. Leave me alone. And I know people who have been through this church family, who have been in Christianity, explored, they've read the whole of Mark's gospel, top to front, they've studied it, and they still said no. That is desperately, desperately sad. That people have seen Jesus And they still go their own way. That's the the first response there. The second is this. It's there in verse 18. As Jesus was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. He's seen what Jesus can do and now he's a deep desire to stay with Jesus. And you think the first thing when he came to his right mind was to get his life back into order to kind of go, well, There's two years of my life wasted. I better get back to the family. Better get back to the old job. Maybe maybe start earning money for myself again. You see, all he wants to do is be, be with Jesus. And why? Because he's not only received the transformation. Look what Jesus says about him. End of verse 19. He's received God's mercy. No one else had given it to him. No one else... Could give it to him. Jesus. Through Jesus he's received God's mercy. Now just as Lillian was praying. If we're Christians and the Lord has forgiven us. Do we long to be with Jesus? Do we long to be with Jesus? Or does everything else. Come first before we spend time reading our Bibles and praying to him. That's a challenge, isn't it? This man wanted to be with Jesus, wanted to sit with Jesus, wanted to to spend time with him. But look what verse 19 says. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. That's weird. Because if you read the rest of Mark's gospel, Jesus is forever telling people, shh, Don't say anything. Don't say anything. And yet here he says, go and tell. Why is that? Well, it's most likely because he's in a Gentile area. And this man is now charged with such a privilege to be one of the first Gentile missionaries to go and share the gospel to Gentile nations. But imagine the pressure. Go and tell your family. Go home to your own people. All these people knew what he'd been through. All these people knew what he was like. All these people who had been cheering him down. Go home to your own people. That's really difficult. I think I'd rather preach anywhere else than in my own home. Do you know why? They know me. They know the impatience and the frustrations and the way I overlook them often. They see my sin. They see my brokenness. And it's hard to share the gospel there, isn't it? Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So who is this? He is the Savior with the power over demons. He's the one who specializes in hopeless situations because he has God's power to change them. And if we Christians have experienced any of that, that love and mercy of God, surely we have a story to tell. Surely even if God has touched us this morning, we can go home over the Sunday lunch and tell that story to others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy you shower upon us. We thank you for the forgiveness we receive through the Lord Jesus Christ. May that mean so much to us that we want to tell others about your mercy, about your grace. So, Lord, encourage us and inspire us by this account in Mark's gospel to be like this man who begged to be with you, Lord, and to whom you gave the command to go and tell as you do the same to us. And this we ask in Jesus' name.